Welcome back, everyone, to a very special episode of the revamped Kent Cricket Podcast. My name is Cameron, and for this special show, I am joined by a man who has been at the forefront of Kent's recent successes, but after six years is retiring from his position as Director of Cricket here at Kent, and that is, of course, Mr Paul Downton. Welcome to the show, Paul. First off, how are you, as I believe we are recording on your very last day here at Kent? Yes, Cameron, it is my last day. I don't quite know what to make of it, really. Excited in one way, looking forward to my lie-in tomorrow, (laughs) but I know I'm going to miss lots of things about this place. It's been a great place to be. No, that's great. And we're going to get right into your time here as director a bit later on. But as I seem to often do with these episodes, I would like to take you back to the start of your playing career, which I know started here at Kent. But what was your first earliest memories of cricket? Who got you into the sport? And then how did that journey process along to you playing for Kent? Yeah, well, I I was born into a cricket playing family. My father, George, was a very good club player for the Semlex Vine. He also played for Kent. He uh, was Godfrey Evans's understudy and played as a 19-year-old back in the late 40s. Played eight matches for Kent as a wicketkeeper. And from my earliest memories, you know, Saturday was about cricket, club cricket in the summer. And it was about going to the Vine, carrying his bag across the Vine uh, and just... It sort of captured me right from the earliest stages. You know, I, I've got a brother who's a, who's a very famous portrait artist and a sister who's been a teacher. But for me, cricket and ball games and sport was all I was really interested in from the very earliest of ages. Were you here during the academy or did someone notice? Yeah, you? no, it was really through school. Okay. Um, so, you know, school, I, I, was a, I was a natural sports player, played lots of sports. But by the time I got to Seven Oaks School in those days, you could take an 11 plus to get to yes, Seven Oaks School, yeah. direct grant school. Then I was playing cricket there. And I guess because my father was very well known in the county and was well known by Kent, you know, there's always a bit of interest about, you know, sons coming up. So from a pretty early age, I remember probably under 11, under 12, there wasn't such a thing as a Kent Academy in those days, but Colin Page was the Kent coach, generally seen as a second team coach, but he used to run nets on a Monday evening down at Seven Oaks at Raleigh's Field, indoor centre there, just a very small two or three lane indoor centre. And we had people like Bob Woolmer come down and coach us, Norman Graham. And actually, you know, I, I later played a lot of test matches against the West Indies, against their quick bowlers. And I'm pretty sure that Norman Graham at six foot seven or six foot eight, bowling on a coconut matting when I was 12, <laughs> you know, and just me loving the challenge of not trying to get out or trying mm. not to get out, you know, and he was bouncing it around and stuff like that. It was, it was great for me. But I suppose, yeah, all of that was playing then cricket at school. I got into the first team, you know, when I was probably 13 or so, so... Uh, and we had some great players there too. Chris Tavare, for example, was a couple of years older than me. So, yeah, that's where it really sort of started to happen. And so when you broke into that Kent side, any memories of some of the players there? Because I'm sure some of our listeners would love to hear stories from that era. Yeah, but it, it sort of starts, you know, getting into the Kent second team, really. And, mm-hmm. and it, luckily, as a wicketkeeper, you don't have to be physically that strong. So I probably played from the age of 16. And at that stage... People like Kevin Jarvis were coming through, Charlie Rowe. I mentioned Chris Tavre before. But I joined the staff in 1976, the year I left school. And I joined with Chris Cowdery, a chap called Nick Kemp. Three of us joined uh, on the same day. Chris Cowdery, I'd grown up with a little bit, played a lot of cricket together. So all th- well, we, you know, we were all mates, and that was great fun. But the Kent side of the 70s, we're talking 1976, you know, Kent were absolutely in their pomp, particularly winning one-day trophies at that stage. 
So, you know, whether it be Luckhurst, Dines, Woolmer, everybody in that side, not an Underwood, was a sort of household name. So joining it was uh, was incredibly exciting. I remember coming down here for a Sunday league match and just being around and a photographer taking the first <laughs> photos anybody taken of me as a photographer and just looking around and seeing the crowd and just thinking, wow, this would be something very special to be to be part of. So I joined in 76, played second team year, went to university at the end of the year, and then the following year came back in 1977 and made my debut for Kent whilst uh, Alan Knott was in the test side. They were playing Australia in 1977. And I had a memorable debut. Asif Iqbal was captain, and we played at the moat against Surrey. And I got 30-odd not out my first innings, batting at 10. And then we went out to field for about an hour uh, at the end of the day. And Asif Iqbal opened the bowling. Mm-hmm. At one end, probably John Shepherd at the other end. And after two or three overs, uh, Asif beckoned to me to come and stand up to the wicket, which, you know, Nottie was absolutely my hero, but made his name as much as anything, particularly to the seamers, standing back and taking brilliant catches. So standing up to the wicket to Asif in about third ball, Alan Butcher misses one down the leg side. I take it and stump him. And it was a pretty exciting way for me to make my first first class victim. And it just so happened that uh, John Murray, the England selector, was on the ground <laughs> at the time. And suddenly, even after day one, there were these sort of headlines coming about the next line of England wicketkeepers or Kent wicketkeepers. And here's an interesting one. Here's a good one sort of thing. And of course, you know, Kent has had that reputation going all the way back to Hewish and then Les Ames and Godfrey Evans, Alan Knott. And now somebody comes along and sort of makes a makes a mark on debut kind of thing. So it was all very exciting, all quite, you know, bewildering in a way. But 77, we went on to share the, the championship with Middlesex. But for me, it was all just the excitement of playing a game. Asif was a brilliant captain, attacking captain. We didn't see much of, you know, Derek Underwood was playing in the test matches, but I remember being 12th man at Folkestone. We played Yorkshire on a wet wicket. And of course, Deadly had this reputation of being deadly on a wet wicket and watching boycott get 69 out, and Hardy faced a ball from, from Underwood. He stood at the other end saying, you know, I'll look after this end, and you lot can look after the other end. And it was all just a sort of fantastic experience, really. But, yeah, memorable period. Kind of jumping off what you were talking there about, obviously, you know, you were a keeper, but that role has changed since yep. perhaps the 70s. Would you say, in your words, more valued as a pure keeper? Obviously, your batting became more prominent. I know you moved up the order. Yep. But you said there, your first match batting at 10. That'd be very unlikely these days to see your keeper batting at 10. How would you say that role changed within cricket since your playing days? Yeah, I I think historically there was always a value to have your best wicketkeeper. And again, historically, keepers stood up to the stumps a lot more. You know, Godfrey Evans made his name standing up to Alec Bedser in test matches. And that was just the way it was. And of course, my father as I said, was an extremely good wicketkeeper and I watched him in club cricket and that was the test of a keeper in those days. Could you stand up to the wicket, not just the spinners, but the medium paces as well. Clearly you had to bat and I enjoy yeah. batting and, you know, had batted at three at school and, and all this, so I scored runs, but getting into that Kent side with all their all-rounders and making a debut, I ended up batting 10. I, I think, you know, Notty was a, was a genius of a cricketer and batted and made his name as well as a batsman. Uh, and there was always this conversation about you know Bob Taylor or, or or Alan Knott, and in the end Alan Knott got in partly because he he scored more runs. Actually, I think he was just a genius cricketer, as I say, and would have got in anyway. But there's always been this sort of you know conversation, uh, and in the end, 
your, your wicketkeeper needs to be an all-rounder. The value of keeping wicket is never obvious enough to say you can have a wicketkeeper who bats 10 or 11 regularly. I mean, mm-hmm. making a debut was different, of course. So I, I then get to another level when uh, Adam Gilchrist came in uh, sure. in, in the mid-2000s and, you know, just transformed that role. There's always been wicketkeepers who batted, but he just really took it to a completely different level. And even now we got to a stage where generally our batsmen can get in the side as a genuine batter alone, whether, you know, whether they keep wicket, look at Bairstow or you know, Sam Billings here yeah. or, or wherever you look, that the level of the batsmanship has got even better. You mentioned there those brilliant wicketkeepers of your era, even like one here being Alan Knott and Bob Taylor. I guess those were kind of in your way to make that step to England a more regular one. But you did go on, your first tour was to Pakistan, New Zealand, was that right? While you're at Middlesex, this is. No, this is Kent. So, oh, so you're at Kent still. That, that, that first year, 1977, I played seven matches whilst Nottie was in the test side. Right. But that was the when Kerry Packer, Oh, yes. Some some listeners will remember Kerry Packer. So Kerry Packer set up World Series cricket and took the world's best players. And Adam not signed up for World Series cricket, which was really, and in fact Kent had five Kerry Packer players at the time. So it became a really controversial thing, and it was seen as splitting, you know, the end of county cricket, splitting up international cricket and, and county cricket, etc. So uh, completely out of the blue, I finished the season playing a second team game at Sittingbourne. We all stayed at Brian Luckhurst's house for a sort of end of season barbecue or whatever uh, and was woken up the next morning by Brian Luckers sort of shouting up the stairs you up there Paul is God on the phone and it turned out to be Donald Carr who was the secretary of the TCCB saying I've been asked to inform you you've been selected to go on the tour to Pakistan and New Zealand but I know you're at university so I need to you to be able to sort yourself out come back to me within two days to let me know whether you're available or not well, this was ridiculous, really. I'd played seven games, but Notty had obviously gone to Packer. Bob Taylor, age 34 at the time, was the obvious first choice. But there were plenty of other wicketkeepers around, but they decided to take a generational step. And I went as a reserve wicketkeeper after just seven first-class games in 1977, in the midst of the Kerry Packer uh, sort of furore. Wow. And I saw some of the names that were on that tour. Yeah, I'd love to know if you can give us a kind of an insight. So, Boycott was captain, was that right? Brearley was captain, Brearley but was captain. Uh, Brearley then broke his arm in right. the second test in Pakistan, That's third right. test possibly, uh, and Boycott took over. So we went to Pakistan and then to New Zealand, yeah. And so some of the other names on that tour was Gatting there? Yeah, Mike Gatting was a contemporary of mine. Yeah. I'd already toured with him as as an England young cricketer, so the year before, so I knew Gat pretty well, absolutely. And Botham was Botham on that tour? It was Botham was his first tour, so three of us went on our first tour together. So what was that like? Because those names to us fans are well known to us all. What was it like being a young man going on tour of England or Pakistan? Yeah, I, I mean, it was it was extraordinary. I mean, firstly, I hadn't met most of the team. You know, I'd only started playing first-team cricket that summer, played seven matches, as I said. So people like Bob Willis, I'd never met before. Boycott, I had met at Folkestone when I was 12th yeah. man, but I'm not sure he remembered me. <laughs> really, I'd not met before. You know, there were a whole number of the side I'd not met. So that was the first thing, because we're almost being introduced around, which is, you know, very unusual. You know, Gat had been playing for two or three years for Middlesex and, and obviously both had, had made his debut that summer. So that was strange. The first thing was, what, what was my nickname going to be? Mm-hmm. And I think Willis came up with Wally because it was a silly enough name and Wally Grout had been a great Australian wicketkeeper. So I'm known as Wally to a certain generation. It's only a very small generation, but 
And then we, we went to Pakistan and it was, you know, it was an extraordinary experience for somebody who you know, wasn't that long out of school, a year out of school and playing cricket on completely alien pitches. You know, in those days, the tour was a long tour. We probably spent 11 weeks in Pakistan and then nine weeks in New Zealand. So we were away for a long time and we played a lot of upcountry games and, you know, you'd sleep four to a room you have a cold water tap in the corner. You might have a hole for a loo outside kind of thing. And it was a very different experience. You know, I remember sleeping in a tracksuit. It was so cold and <laughs> uh, and all that kind of stuff. It was just, you know, but for a young kid, of course, it didn't matter at all. It was just a huge excitement, a huge experience. And looking back, we went up the Khyber Pass. We played in Peshawar, went to the Afghani border and sort of saw the whole thing happening there. So it was a, just a completely different experience. But I'd, I'll always remember Boycott saying to me, look, kid, you're really talented. I struggled for a bit. You know, I found it difficult keeping on Pakistani wickets. You had to stand very close. The ball didn't carry very hard. And he said, look, you've got talent, but in the end, you haven't got any experience. So don't get down on yourself. You know, this is all about experience and learning what it's like to play abroad. The series itself was, again, an extraordinary experience. It was very dull cricket. I think all three games were drawn but Pakistan at the time was in quite a political sort of upheaval and the games got used as political rallies at times so that was again big big eye opener and you know you're a different part of the world which is very alien really to uh, being brought up in uh, in Kent and then we flew down to New Zealand and that was like a very different experience we met the Headley brothers and I went out with John Lever and Bob Willis and we ended up having smoked snapper on the harbour <laughs> and a glass of wine, and it was a completely different experience, but very exciting too. Who, because I remember when I spoke to, I believe it was Nathan, Nathan Gilchrist, and he was saying on his tour, they didn't have to share rooms, thankfully then, but that was on an England Lions tour, I believe. But yeah. you were saying you were four to a room at some point. At some point, when we were playing up country in sort of Sialkot or places like this, I actually made my international debut, I, you know, my one-day debut. I played in the third one-day international there. So actually, if you look... Uh, I think I'm number 44 on the One Day International list, oh. as opposed to, you know, it, it's One Day International's hadn't been going very long, really. But yeah, as I say, it was just an extraordinary experience. None of the luxury. We were definitely all sharing rooms anyway, you know, even in the bigger hotels. But you, you travelled the country and you played in some very different places. Who were your roommates? Oh, all? gosh, I can't remember yeah. that very much now. <laughs> I remember sharing with Boff, which was quite an experience. I shared with John Lever. I shared with Gat initially. As 12th man, I wasn't really there to play many games of cricket. I think I played nine days of cricket in those 11 weeks, I think, although it did include that one, the international. But I spent a lot of time with a physio, a chap called Bernard Thomas. He was an ex-international gymnast. And he was a Mr. Fix-It. And we took cans of Spam. I don't know whether people, I don't know whether Spam still exists actually now. So corned beef and Spam with us. And, you know, the job of the 12th man was to making sure that toast was made, that the Spam was available. One or two, John Lever would always eat the local food and had a cast iron constitution. But most people got ill at some stage. It was very different. We were all told, you know, you, you couldn't drink the water, you couldn't have the salad and... You know, medicinal glass of whiskey at night was quite good, which I hated, but occasionally would have one. <laughs> so it's just a you know a whole sort of plethora of experiences, really. Brady was captain, as I say. We played on some very flat wickets. Spinners did an awful lot of the bowling. But yeah, as I say, it was a real extraordinary experience. It's nice to know that even in the international scene, when you're 12th man, you still have to do the odd <laughs> duty. I remember on my only overseas tour, I had to when I was 12th man for a game, I had to apply sun cream. 
to some of the players. That was that was my role. I won't tell you where. Um, but you mentioned there that you made your one day debut on that tour. Yeah. You obviously excelled in that format of the game. I'll speak to you in a bit about hopefully the ninety eight seven World Cup campaign. Yep. But did you have a preference between the two formats? No, and they weren't so different. Everybody played all formats, really. Right. You know, you played with the red ball for a start. The, web, the white ball hadn't come along by then. And you just adapted and adjusted. And three-day cricket, as it was then, and then test match cricket, was just as important as playing in the limited overs cricket, So, which was 40-over cricket on a Sunday. We played the Sunday league. Then you had 55-over cricket was the Benson Hedges, and 60-over cricket was the Gillette Cup. And then eventually... They all got sort of cut down a little bit. The Benson and Hedges went to 50 overs and, and the Gillette Cup went to 55. But no, you wanted to play all formats and you developed your techniques. We didn't spend specific time on it. The bowlers didn't work on variations. Batters just used cricketing shots. The reverse sweep didn't really come about until Warwickshire started to use it in the, about 1990-93-4 that kind of time so it's just playing normal cricket shots and trying to score runs find runs I developed running twos for me was a really big thing if I wasn't powerful enough did it over the you know out of the ground kind of thing turning and running twos became something I really focused on and, and actually again proved to be pretty pretty effective and so going into that World Cup campaign in India can you remember what was that journey like getting called up for a World Cup must have been an amazing opportunity and then obviously getting to the final and then that final in Eden Gardens. Yeah, it was a, I mean, I need to go back a little bit and say that having gone on this England tour in 77, 78, I came back, played that full summer in 1978 when Kent last won the championship and was very much a novice in that side. But Derek Underwood played the whole series or the whole summer, got 100 wickets. Asif Iqbal played, apart from Notty, who had a sabbatical, which allowed me to play. We were virtually a test side, really. So that was fantastic, but I didn't get selected the following year. I then subsequently moved to Middlesex because Notty did come back and play. And there was the choice was, well, do you want to wait and hang around for him to sort of, in effect, retire? Or do you want to move on? And went to Middlesex having finished university by that stage. And again, went on my first tour, or my next tour to the West Indies, and actually took over from David Bairstow, who was on the tour as the number one wicketkeeper. Came back, played the Ashes in 1981, Botham's Ashes. People forget we had three wicketkeepers in that series. (laughs) I got dropped after the first game. Bob Taylor came back, and he got left out for Alan Knott by the fifth game. (laughs) So three wicketkeepers in a series, very unusual. And then... Luckily, Middlesex was a good side and we competed, you know, both one day cricket and championship cricket at the time. So when I did get back into the test side in 1984, he was more as a specialist wicketkeeper batsman, but playing test match cricket. Mm-hmm. David Bairstow played the one day internationals that year and it took a while to get into the one day team which I, I did in India that winter in 84 85 so I played two years of solid cricket both one day and test matches but got dropped in 86 by the time then I got recalled to go to that World Cup I'd actually been out of the England side for a year and a half but had a very good year with Middlesex scored a lot of runs and yeah I got picked as a, a wicketkeeper batter but mm-hmm. particularly with batting as an emphasis really yeah. and going to India playing in a World Cup 
What was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, that in itself was huge. Split between Pakistan and India, which I had toured both before. But yeah, being in a side, I mean, Dominic, probably Graham Gooch was probably the best player in the side, but you also had Gatting and Lamb. Gower didn't go on that trip for some reason. I can't remember why now. But, you know, we had a pretty established one-day side, but absolutely led by Graham Gooch opening the batting. We lost our first game against Pakistan. Got bowled out by a leg spinner, Abdul Qadir, but found our way, crucially beat the West Indies, who were still, you know, absolutely the top side at that time in Raw Pindi, which got us through to... A semi-final. Semi-final against India, played in Mumbai, or Bombay as it was then, was huge. And of course, India having won the uh, the World Cup in 83, that's the first time the World Cup had been held outside of England. And they were huge favourites, as you would imagine. But Gooch got 100, swept his way to 100, and we ended up winning. The other semi-final was Pakistan against Australia, played in Pakistan. So potential for a Pakistan-India final was all there. But sadly for the home nation, we played Australia. And again, it's a tournament new building. We didn't start very well, but got better. Our bowlers, which is quite a young, unestablished bowlers, got better. And we found a way until we got to Australia. And yeah, one of the great sort of regrets, it's wonderful to get to a final, play in a final, but actually if you don't win it, then it's not so good. (laughs) And that was a game that, you know, we absolutely could have won, got ourselves into a winning position, but failed. Well, just before we get perhaps to that final, obviously at the moment we record this with, there's symmetry there, England are playing in a World Cup in India, yeah, mathematically out. Did you go into that tournament as one of the favourites? You said you had India there, obviously Australia, West Indies. And if not, perhaps, because England have gone into this tournament you know, the bookies having them right up there. Yeah. They had that pressure. Did you have that pressure going into the tournament? We were seen as a sort of a growth side. Mike Gatting had taken over a year and a bit before and had gone to Australia. A team that couldn't bat, couldn't bowl and couldn't field, according to Martin Johnson. Then won the Ashes, won a sort of a tri-nation series and also won a particular series in Perth. So we actually came to the World Cup having had a very dominant tour to Australia the year before. Gat was in in his pomp too. I mean, I mentioned Gooch, but Gat was also a, a major influence. And so we were a dangerous side without right. being a favourite. And if you look at the history of the World Cups, you know, England were, have been in the final an awful lot, but they were always played in England. And we had a good side, not many specialists, but just good players. I think 87 was probably the last time in a way that people weren't specialising particularly. You know, your best side was your best side and you played all formats, really. So we knew we had a decent chance, but as I say, West Indies dominated generally. Australia were always a good side. And then playing in the subcontinent, obviously bought India, Pakistan. It was before Sri Lanka had played. But, you know, it was never going to be easy in those kind of conditions. So I think we weren't fancied probably to, to get into the finals. As I said the dream final was India and Pakistan. So for us to be playing Australia... And we were the dominant side against Australia, having beaten Australia in the Ashes in Australia only the year before, beat them in these two World Series or these one-day competitions. You know, we actually fancied our chances against Australia. It was before their side had really, you know, they were still recovering from the great eras of the earlier periods. And I think Steve Waugh was just about playing. It wasn't a side where they had an established side at all. So it was frustrating to lose that game. We sort of went away from a method we generally bowled very tidily and often batting first and put in a score on the board. This time we ended up putting them in. They got off to a flyer and we never quite got into the game, even though we should have won it. Yeah. So following that World Cup, you played for a few more years. 
until, if I'm right in, in saying, you suffered a freak accident, which is why you ended up finishing your playing career. But what happened in between? Was that 1990? Yeah, so the World Cup was 87. Yeah. I then played my last test matches the following year in 88. You know, I played 30 test matches, yeah. 16 of them were against the West Indies. So I became a bit <laughs> of a West Indies specialist, which wasn't great yeah, for records for deal, or yeah. anything else, frankly. But the West Indies came over uh, in 88. I played the first three tests. Jack Redshidster took over. Yeah, uh, sorry, let me just start. What yeah. was it like playing the West Indies at that time? Because... <laughs> Yeah. Some people, I wasn't fortunate enough to see it with my own eyes, but the stories you hear, some of those great names, great players, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, they they really dominated cricket for 20 years from the sort of mid-70s, 75, 76, through to 95. Without doubt, they were the most powerful side around in all conditions. I mean, that was the amazing thing that they won on the subcontinent. They won on Australia. I, I was part of two 5-0 defeats one in England in 84 and one in West Indies in 86. So they absolutely dominated and they changed Test cricket really by the dominance of the fast bowlers. So they were the first side really to use four fast bowlers out and out fast bowlers. Mm -hmm. Of course, West Indies just produced so many at the time. You know, I first played in 1981, January 1981, February 81. And that side was Andy Roberts, Michael Holding, Colin Croft and Joel Garner. Malcolm Marshall was a contemporary of mine. I played youth cricket against him, but he was just sort of 12th man or roundabout, made his debut in that series later on. Then in 84, you know, Holding was still around, Garner was still around, Roberts had finished, but Marshall had taken over. Eldine Baptiste played, a Kent uh, overseas player. And then you had Courtney Walsh coming through, Courtney Ambrose coming through, <laughs> Ian Bishop coming through. And, you know, the people that they left out, so Wayne Daniel, who I played with at Middlesex, was a brilliant fast bowler. Sylvester Clark at Surrey at the time, brilliant fast bowlers. You could have named a whole host who would have got into any any other side. So that was the real difference, the number of world-class fast bowlers that they had. And they also had a brilliant batting side up. Mm -hmm. You know, Greenwich and Haynes were two of the most successful you know, opening pairs in this history, really. Viv Richards and then you know, Clive Lloyd before that and then a number of others whether it be Gus Logie or Richie Richardson Jeffrey Dujon took over as a keeper was a really good batter too so they were just a, a dominant side in all formats in all conditions pretty much for 20 years so yeah If you could have taken one of those fast bowlers into any of your England sides which one was the one that you thought was the best they were all amazing but Well the one that stands out in the end is Malcolm Marshall because he became the leader you know of that group so even all these other fast bowlers were around and if you look at his record mm -hmm. it is significantly above all the others he wasn't a big man at all but just skillful and naturally lied naturally quick but yeah had a reputation that if he wanted to bowl really fast and bowl in timidry he could but otherwise he could bowl move the ball and was just a really consistent performer. So I think he's absolutely the standout out of all of those guys in, in that era. So yeah, sorry, I interrupted you from where you were going to the end of your career in this freak incident. So yeah, I can't remember where we got to, but I played my last test match in 88. I had a benefit year at Middlesex in 1990, but I got a bail in the eye playing in a, in a 40 over match, on player league match or whatever it was called at the time at Basingstoke. John Embry were bowling, all the Yorker to Julian Wood, left-hander, and you know, you, you're sort of naturally, your hands are low, so your face is quite low, and you're near the stumps, and a bale just went straight into my eye. So I sort of 
don't remember much about it, really. I remember coming up from some sort of a faint uh, and being taken to Basingstoke Hospital. And for a while, I, you know, I had no vision in that eye. And it was for a while, it was, wasn't sure as to how bad the damage was and so on. It ended up shattering my lens to an extent. So even now I'm slightly blurred out of one eye, but it's amazing what the brain does. Nothing as serious, like, you know, like Boucher's injury, which similar injury in a, you know similar circumstances but the bale flicked there and, and lacerated his eye whereas mine was went straight in a bit like being poked him you know, in the eye with a stick kind of yeah. thing so but it was a it left me in nine in so i missed seven weeks or so by which time middlesex were leading the championship it was my benefit year i sort of talked my way back into the side played a second team game got some runs talked my way back into the side and played the last three or four games but I really struggled, not so much batting, because you know, in a straight line, you could line it up. But keeping wicket, if you got a little deflection, then I'd lost my sense of depth just enough to make it really difficult. And it then became very vulnerable, really. So I took the winter off. I'd been working. I'd, I'd actually been working in the city for the previous several winters since I, I got dropped out of the England side and, and came back, played the first two or three matches of 1991, but realised that, you know, it was always going to be a battle. I'd lost something and actually it was the right time to move on and do something else. How did that work, balancing then, you're saying, your work in the city and with still playing? Because you wouldn't hear many professional players these days no. have to balance those two different careers. No, it, it was it, it was very different. You know, contracts were six, possibly seven month contracts. Basically, you, you were contracted, say, from the 1st of April to the end of September. And you were therefore left to do whatever you wanted to do during the winter or whatever you could do. So, you know, as young players, we all went out to Australia or South Africa or somewhere and played club cricket. I had a couple of winters in Queensland and then a year at Stellenbosch University. It's outside Cape Town. Or you got on a tour. That's what everybody wanted to do, get on an England tour. Or you found work in whichever way you could and you know there's legendary number of jobs from was it harry pilling was a grave digger in the winter and his time off lots of people you know ran taxes other people got opportunities here and the ever and I, I guess i knew well that there is certainly that moment in time when you realize i think i was 29 i got left out of the england side in 86 and suddenly you saw the top of the hill and you looked over the other side and you wonder well what am I going to do now I, I you know I've been to university I had a law degree I was playing for Middlesex I was living in London a lot of my contemporaries had found their way into the city the city and sport mix extremely well and even though I didn't have an economic background at all I did a lot of work in the summer of 86 and spoke to a lot of people and in the end company called James Capel, who had a very progressive chief executive who actually subsequently sponsored Kent, <laughs> coincidentally. <laughs> but he loved sport, but he also saw a lot of quality in sportsmen, which would make good people potentially in the city, because the city is very much based around, I mean, went to the stockbroking world. It's about relationships and building trust and that kind of thing. So I started working in 19, yeah, 1986 and in the end did five winters although I took a winter off to go in the World Cup the following year. And, you know, they were very supportive. And it did mean that when it came to doing something else, I was 34 and I had an opportunity to go into the city and, and start a new career. Mm-hmm. I find that remarkable, just taking well, time it, off to go to the World Cup. Well, I mean, that was the... It was in October, so it wasn't <laughs> as though you had... You started work and then suddenly got on a train or got on a flight. But 
you know, they were just very supportive. If that had happened again or I got picked for an England tour, then they would have said, well, go on an England tour. Uh, absolutely. But, you know, it was also quite hard. My mates were still going to Australia and South Africa and playing a lot of golf and doing this, that, and the other, where I was, I was suddenly getting up at half past five in the morning, not seeing the light of day and getting into an environment which is completely alien. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was a good experience. And, and obviously it then led to a what turned out to be a 22-year city career. And from there... Why did you change to cricket administration then? Because was your first role the one at the ECB? Yeah, so, you know, whilst I started in the city in, in, in late 91, I got persuaded to join the Middlesex Committee in 94. So I never lost touch with cricket, but I was one of those committee members who never had very much time to watch cricket, but obviously had a lot of friends and contemporaries, Gatting, Embry, people like that, who went on and, and, you know, continued to play for Middlesex. So I felt I could add something from a committee point of view. So I'd I'd never sort of, you know, been out of touch with cricket. And I was asked to go onto the MCC Cricket Committee again in probably about 2010. And then, yes, that opportunity came up which came slightly out of the blue, I would have to be the first to admit. You know, I'd, I'd always known a lot of people who were running English cricket. Lords is the centre of it all. ECB's based there. David Collar was the chief executive then, and we had some mutual friends. I knew him well, but he knew of me. And I think at that time, you know, Hugh Morris had had that role for seven years or so, but wanted to move on to go down to Glamorgan as their chief executive. And I think in an ideal world, Strauss might have been appointed or they looked at a number of people, I'm sure, and went through an interview process. But in the end, I'm not sure they really found what they wanted. So they cast the net wider. And I I just got a text to say, would you be interested in putting your hat in the ring, really? I was coming towards the end of a city career. I was 57, I think, at the time. And it just seemed like an amazing opportunity. So I, I went along and through a series of interviews and you know, thinking about it from my point of view, I got offered the opportunity and it was just too good an opportunity to turn down. And I think what they were looking for was somebody who hadn't been absolutely at the centre of it Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of day-to-day cricket, but still had a cricket background, was still in touch, as I say, through committees and watching cricket and just being around young players still, but also had a different perspective to bring, whether it's more of a business side or or just somebody who come in from the outside and look again at what England were doing. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it was just an opportunity I couldn't miss. It turned out to be a bit of a poison chalice, but then you you don't know that at the time, and uh, I certainly don't regret doing it. What were some of the things that happened, positive and negative, were in your position at the ECB? <laughs> well, I mean, I accepted the role, and I think in, in mid-October of 2013, England were about to get on a plane to go to... Australia, they've been the Ashes holder for a while. I met Andy Flower and Ashley Giles. Andy Flower's the test coach, Ashley Giles the one-day coach. Literally just before Andy got on the plane to go out there. And at the time, you could see that England were just peaking. Strauss had finished in 2012, year and a bit before, Cook had taken over. The bowlers, you know, maybe were coming towards that, the end a little bit. And a very settled and established side was just starting probably to creak. And, and it was that year where we, we changed cycles. So we'd actually had an Ashes series in 2013 in the summer, which England had just about scraped through and won. But some cracks were starting to appear, having dominated for two or three years. And I think Australia were really looking forward to getting England back down there again that very winter. So I took on the job with England as sort of world number one virtually. I think they had been the year before. Struggled a bit in, in white ball cricket, but that hadn't really been the focus because we were 
in this sort of cycle of Ashes cricket. And then things went very wrong very early, if you remember the 2013-14 tour. Yes. Jonathan Trop came back very early on. Steve Finn really struggled. Swan, Swan retired, didn't he? came back, yeah. sort of declared he's decided to retire halfway through the series. Yeah. The whole thing just everything collapsed. So my role went from managing decline, how did you sort of manage that, to actually a car crash and how did you rebuild? And I had three months of, I was working with JP Morgan, JP Morgan Kasnov, so I had a three months notice period. So I wasn't really due to start until well, first of first of February, but actually they released me really. I got involved before Christmas doing a couple of days a week and then went out to Australia for New Year. We'd just gone 3-0 down, lost the ashes. As I was in the plane over there, we went 4-0 down. So the whole thing was just a very different sort of concept, really. I met all the guys uh, and again... You know, losing in Australia is a hard place to lose. But spent a lot of time with Andy Flower. We talked about whole culture, really, where things were going wrong. And it then became clear. I watched the, the fifth test where we lost in three days. So to complete a 5 nil, And it was just very clear we had a huge rebuilding job to do. Andy Flower felt forced to resign. So we had... He had to appoint a coach at some stage. Ashley Giles came out and took over for the, the White Ball series group of new players come in for the mm. White Ball Series, by which time I went home and sort of really working at Lords and working on the fact that we had a real rebuilding job to do. We would have to appoint a new coach and how would we go about it, really? So it was quite a dramatic sort of introduction, even before I'd officially started. You know, we'd had the resignation of the coach. Social media had just been taking off. ECB had no social media operation. So you were up against Piers Morgan and his four or five million followers and so on. And yes, it was yeah. just a very difficult time to get through that period, really. But, you know, I look back on it now and think... Actually, it was exactly right to, to back Cook. Young players were starting to come through, people like Butler. Well, that year, in that summer, Moen Addy made his debut. Chris Jordan made his debut. Butler made his debut. Was Root around that time? Root was already playing, right. but had been dropped for the last game in Sydney. Pryor was coming to the end of his series. Gary Balance made his debut and played brilliantly, actually. So by the time that summer came around, we lost a two-match series against Sri Lanka, agonisingly off the last ball, but then went and played India in 2014. And having lost, uh, I think, the second game at Laws, came back to win 3-1, and, and Cook really sort of grew and had a huge amount of popular support, but it was like a, a silent support rather than a social media support. And, and out of that, and my job as far as the ball was concerned, how can you rebuild a test side to compete with Australia in 2015? And whilst I finished in April 2015, that side went on to win the Ashes in 2015, which was really what we were tasked with. The problem actually was that we then had a World Cup in the middle of it, and we really weren't a good white ball side. The whole cricketing setup in England was not based around white ball cricket. No white ball cricketers had central contracts. It was a sort of almost a peripheral type of thing in terms of the way in which white ball cricket had been treated in a way. And the results showed that. And, you know, well, we were right in the middle of T20 taking over. So younger players like a Jason Roy or an Alex Hales had started to be become on the periphery of the of the England white ball side, but hadn't played 50 over cricket. And it just seemed 
too much of a gamble to sort of thrust them into a World Cup. And all the stats said you have to have an experienced side and so on and so forth. But we had to make a difficult decision to drop Alistair Cook from that white ball side in sort of December of that year, going into a, a February World Cup. Appointed Owen Morgan as very much a sort of specialist guy and you could see that was going to be the future, but you always knew that we had a puncher's chance because we had good players, but we just weren't in a situation to compete in that 2015 World Cup. But the question was, we knew we had an England World Cup in 2019. We really had to concentrate on that. And all that work started then, mm. but it was too late in terms of the 2015 World Cup. And by which time the people that employed me had all moved on. So I found myself vulnerable and, and was... Um, well, I had a choice of being sacked or resigned. I chose not to resign. And um, so that was in April of 2015. And it was an interesting experience. It certainly gave me the opportunity to come back into cricket, which I, you know, I hadn't really been looking for, but it was a fascinating experience to go through. I could do a whole episode just on the time at <laughs> the ECB. At that volatile time, it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. But let's get back. So with Kent, 2018, yep. you get asked to be our first ever director of cricket what were those discussions like what convinced you to come back down yeah, to Canterbury? I, I, I hadn't been looking to get back into cricket really I'd done a couple of things on my own but was approached by an old friend to say you know would you again be interested in talking about this job and I it was not something that I thought about but again the more I thought about it the more interested it became for me it was a chance to you know sort of complete the circle come back to a county I was living in Kent anyway and always had done really uh, once I left London and the more I thought about it and talked to people about it the more interesting it was so I ended up again putting my hat in the ring and we went through an interview process and and I was fortunate enough to be asked to take on this role and I do remember great thing to do go to Antigua the, the side was on tour in Antigua so I joined in mid-February and the first thing I did was to go out to Antigua which was <laughs> But I, I guess all these experiences had given me a certain sort of perspective and a certain feel about how you wanted to go about it. And I think the first thing was that, you know, Sam Northeast had just really left the county having been captain. That had all happened before I was involved. Sam Billings had been appointed captain. So those decisions had been made. But I think we'd lost probably four or five players from the last year. And I think there were 10 people on, on one year. Well, they were in the last year of their contract. So had no sort of certainty. So I think just trying to bring some structure to the whole process of the first thing to do was to say, right, I'm responsible now. So it's no longer a committee. No longer do you, you're not quite sure who you're reporting to. We just create a structure now where I'm responsible for all the business side of cricket. I'm not a coach. So Matt Walker had the opportunity to really take the coaching side on and Alan Donald had just joined us. We made one or two signings. Harry Podmore was out of contract. So I desperately saw the need for bowlers. And whilst our batting looked pretty strong, our bowlers very much relied on Steve Owen. Frankly, that was about it. So Harry Podmore joined us. And then we got lucky in that Matt Henry became available as an overseas player, which turned out to be a wonderful signing. And along with Heino Kuhn coming as an experienced batter, in effect, to take Sam Northeast place. And I think those those sort of core three signings made a huge difference to the stability of the side. Joe Denley had a wonderful year in 2018. Steve-O continued to get wickets. Podmore got 45 wickets in the championship, I think, and Matt Henry blitzed people. But that's sort of going forward. I think from my point of view, it was just a really exciting opportunity. Didn't really know what to expect, but you just get involved. And to me, it was all about how do we 
gain respect? How do we gain respect of the opposition? How, how does Kent become a force? And we talked about us raising standards. How ambitious could we be? You can't foretell the future. Of course, we have budgetary issues. We, we can't go out and do this and the other, but we can compete. And if you get down to competing a ball at a time and over at a time, a session at a time, then the school will look after itself. It's a, you know, it's a big Bill Walsh saying in American football, don't look at the outcome. How do you get from A to B? And it is just about competing, taking every ball as it counts and, and doing your best. Honestly, thank you so much. We're going to have to take a break now, but come back with a few more questions specific about your role here at Kent. But right. so far, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time, Paul. Not at all. Hi, it's Paul. This episode is sponsored by the Kent Cricket Community Trust, the charitable arm of Kent Cricket. The Trust aims to make a positive impact in the community by providing opportunities that promote social inclusion and cohesion. With cricket's unique ability to reach beyond a diverse range of social boundaries, our programmes support socialisation and well-being. The main programmes currently delivered are the No Boundaries programme, aimed at young people at risk, the First Change programme, engaging with refugees and asylum seekers, the 50 Overs programme, walking cricket and cricket and tea events aimed at those at risk of becoming socially isolated and vulnerable. You'll find out more about the Kent Cricket Community Trust at kentcricket.co.uk slash kcct kent cricket's community trust 50 overs program has been a massive success since its launch with weekly sessions running in ramsgate folkestone ashford swale strood and canterbury these slower paced cricket sessions are followed by a catch-up over a cuppa and have seen participants health and fitness improve and many new friendships formed as well if you're interested in attending one of these sessions please email us on community trust at kentcricket.co.uk that's community trust at kentcricket.co.uk. Kent Cricket Community Trust has found that cricket is the lead sport played and watched amongst the refugee community in Kent. The first change programme aims to support the resettlement process for refugees and asylum seekers by providing weekly coaching sessions with our professional coaches. These opportunities help social integration, skills development, and maintaining positive well-being. If you want to know more and how you can help us, please see our website or contact us on communitytrust at kentcricket.co.uk. Welcome back to the Kent Cricket Podcast. While I'm still here, joined by Mr Paul Downton, and we're going to go through some questions that we have for your time here at Kent and some that hopefully us fans are going to get a real insight over what you did here. So what current player could you see in the current Kent squad to be a good director of cricket? That's an interesting question. I think slightly avoid that question. Say Simon Cook stood out as someone who <laughs> who could be a, a director of cricket. I think Sam Billings has got you know it's something he's really interested in. There's a sort of sports management course that several people have done. Uh, you know, Ashley Giles, you know, to, to name but one, which he's interested. in. Luke Wright's done it as well, which I know Sam has talked about doing at some stage in the future. You know, there are any number, I'm sure. Simon did stand out very quickly as somebody who was very organised and very thorough. And Yeah. Okay, and as you can imagine, us fans, I don't know if we'd describe this as silly season, but it's the off-season where signings normally come in or people leave or so on. Yeah. Could you talk us through what is the process of one identifying a player, going from finding that player that you'd like, maybe the gap in the squad, to eventually signing them, whether that's a domestic or an overseas signing? 
Yeah, well, I, mean, I think the first thing to say from a domestic point of view, it's not like football. It's not as though there's a market out there. Right. So there aren't that many moves that happen, many more than there used to be, but there aren't that many. Uh, and I think when I came here, bowlers were the biggest, you know, we lacked consistent bowlers, apart from Steve-O, who was continuing to do his stuff. So maybe the best example of how we went about it was Matt Milnes, who came to us from Knotts in 2019. He'd been identified by a data analyst who, Dan Weston, who's now with us, but at the time was freelancing. And he was someone who spent an awful lot of time just logging data. You know, would be the first to say he doesn't actually know that much about cricket, but just log data. And he had identified Matt Milnes as somebody who had played at university, played at Durham University, played the old first-class game, hadn't been part of the Knots set-up, but was doing extremely well in club cricket for West Bridgeford in the Knots League. And his stats, not just wickets and runs, but all the stats you can gather, you know, stood out against his peer group. And Knots signed him on a three-month contract in 2017, and they extended it to a, a season-long contract in 2018. So... By which time, Dan then had second team data to look at. And again, said, this guy really stands out amongst his peer group. So we started to get really quite interested in, in him. And we sent some people to have a look at him. So Treddy, James Treadwell, went up and looked at him in a second team game and said, he looks like an athlete. He looks like a good bowler. We started to do some due diligence. And in those days, you had to write a letter if somebody was in the last year of their contract, then all the counties have to put that information into the ECB by the 8th of April. And at that stage, you could write a letter to anybody who was in the last year of his contract and send what they call a 28-day notice letter, which basically said, we would like to talk to Matt Milnes in this case after 28 days if you've not signed him for the following year. So we wrote a letter to Knotts and I subsequently had some conversations with Mick Newell to say, how on earth did you even know about him? I mean, he hadn't made his debut for Knotts at the time. He did play some games and I became aware he was going to make his debut for Knotts on a Saturday against Somerset at Taunton. And I ummed and ahed about whether to go down, but as soon as I saw that Knotts were going to bowl, I got in a car from Seven Oaks and drove down to Taunton. I had to make a call to Andy Hurry, who's their director of cricket, to say, would it be all right if I come in today? And he said, well, what are you doing down here? And he said, well, I'm actually come to look at a player. And he was, well, one of ours. And I said, actually, no, it's somebody from the other side. But, you know, I'm genuine about this. and didn't tell him who it was. But he said, yeah, all right. So they left a ticket on the gate and I watched it. And I got there just after lunch and the spinners were bowling. And then we got to the new ball was taken 90 or 80 overs. So I thought, well, I'll, right, I'll see him now. And then for some reason, Stephen Mullaney, who was the captain, took the new ball at one end and Luke Fletcher bowled at the other end. I thought, no, I'm going to spend all this time <laughs> getting down and ring any ball. But he, he came on and bowled the last probably four or five overs from one end with the river end and just immediately looked like an athlete. He got his first wicket, which you know, hit top of off. And I think at that stage, and I'm no bowling coach or anything else, but I could absolutely see someone who just had genuine potential, bowled at a decent pace, but just looked an athlete, really. So we then followed it up. Uh, he hadn't signed then for Knotts, but obviously started to play. We played Knotts. We played Knotts in the quarterfinal, the 50-over competition in 2018. And Matt Milnes was there and actually took the time to come up to me and said, introduced himself and said, can we you know, have a conversation? So we went up and found some room somewhere and we talked about it. 
And it's clear that he was a very level-headed guy, very ambitious, wanted to play. And then through the PCA acted as his agent, we went back and forth, made an offer. And it wasn't clear that he was going to leave at that stage. But I think his ambition suggested that in the end, he could see he was going to get more opportunity with us than he was with Knotts and decided to sign. And, you know, the various other conversations about how he trained, he came from a professional sporting background. His brother played, was on the Leicester City books as a footballer at one stage. And there was just loads of things that sort of felt absolutely right about him. And when he came down here, and I think he got 50 wickets in his first year, which was absolutely, I think that's some really good example of when everything goes right you see people early and get in early and then somebody giving no guarantee to come and walk straight to the first team but looking at our side and saying you know there will be opportunities here and so Nathan Gilchrist was again something similar again through Min Patel having been with uh, on the Young England tour knew John Lewis who was a Young England bowling coach I think at the time and just talking around who else did he rate at the time and there was this lad down at Somerset just signed a rookie contract and played but looked so again we watched him and we had these Zoom conversations. He was down in Cornwall. It must have been during COVID, actually, I think. And he just came across as just a mature guy, again, who wanted to play cricket. And by that stage, Tim Gruneveld was here and knew him as a youngster at Somerset. And I think that was helpful because Tim and Nathan could talk together. So again, he took the brave decision of coming to join us. No guarantee of playing a first team, but very quickly established himself as a leading player. But you've got to be quite lucky. Everson was another one who we'd identified very early on. It was clear that, that Knotts were going to have a logjam there with Mullaney and then Linda James doing very well. How much was he going to get in the side? And So finding young players who aren't getting opportunity is, is one very obvious thing. And generally, we've done quite well, I think, on that. Every now and again, we've tried to bring experienced people in at the other end of their career, but just to give us some kind of balance. So Tim Gruneveld, unfortunately, injured his knee, but was a great influence around people. And Michael Hogan, obviously, this year was was another kind of example of that. And it's really, you know, we would have loved to have signed, there were several bowlers around this year, which we went after and had good conversations with them. But in the end, either they decided to stay where they were or went to another county. And, you know, bowlers in particular, it's very competitive to find bowlers who are available. So that work continues and where we've had our most success is to try to find players who've got the potential to grow and get better and again I think Simon Cook's been very good at helping those guys develop their skills you think that Matt Milnes played six first last games before he came here hadn't played a white ball game played in you know that sort of 2019 season in the, in the one day cup played in the Covid year and developed his skills so that by 2021 actually gone from nowhere to being becoming one of the best white ball bowlers in the country by his own ambition but also by us being able to develop him and help him and, and so on and so forth the overseas players is difficult and that's got harder and harder and harder i mean I mentioned that first year without doubt you know matt henry is the best signing that we made and that was something that came to us very late and you know we didn't know how well he would do. He hadn't had a great reputation when he played for Derby and Worcester and various stints before. He was obviously on the periphery of the New Zealand side, but he absolutely was fantastic for us, as, as we all know and high know. As far as T20 is concerned, then you're looking at just who's available to do what we want. And 
We've had a very settled batting side, but again, needed to build up our bowling attack. Actually, Fred Clarkson was another good signing of someone who came over here playing for Holland. And we could again see potential as a left-handed bowler. And again, you know, he's developed fantastically for us to be one of the, again, one of the best in the country. But for us, spin has been an issue. So we've often looked for spinners in T20 competition. So Nabi was a really exciting signing in 2019 could also bat as well but you know that side actually in 2019 I think was the strongest T20 side we've ever put together partly because we used Colpac with not only Hino being here but Adam Milne was here Nabby was here and then we decided to go the whole hog and uh, and Hardest Villian joined us yes uh, and we absolutely dominated the early part of that T20 you know, I think we won our first six games and I think, look, the best side of the country, our fielding was excellent. We just had a, a variety of an attack with class and starting to play, but also with a backup that we had then. Unfortunately, when one or two of the guys got injured and we lost a couple of games with storms here. We, I think we ended up losing our last three games. You only need one to get through to the quarterfinals and then I think we could have taken anybody on as well. So we didn't maximise that side, but Case was another interesting Somebody slightly under the radar, I'd watch quite a lot. I saw him playing in Sri Lanka when Daniel Beljumba was out there in a T20 competition. You know, Rashid had obviously come over and been the standard bearer. Majib then came. And Case just looked a very natural bowler, but wasn't necessarily getting in their side. So again, to me, that was just a great opportunity. Leg spin, genuine leg spinner. Hadn't been seen before, some element of mystery over here. Uh, and obviously he played a huge part in us winning the T20 in 2021. And, you know, and sometimes it doesn't work. You know, George Lender on paper was absolute. I was so excited about that signing. For somebody who was an experienced spinner, got 250 wickets, average of 24, scored runs, played all formats for South Africa, just dropped out of their international side, really wanted to come and play. You know, the due diligence we did with Fafta Plessy and, and a variety of other people, I thought he would be absolutely key and we were very excited about him. But it just never quite worked. You know, I think he was a bit injured. I think the whole, the English season is so intense, really, that if you lose a bit of confidence early, it's hard to get it back. And it just didn't quite work. You know, George tried extremely hard, but it just didn't quite work. So you never quite know how these things are going to work out. It's got harder and harder, as I say, to find really high quality overseas players and this year I think we probably offer contracts to I don't know six or seven players who one by one either got injured or couldn't come or actually somebody else came in and paid up so you know this year has been extraordinary really obviously we settled early with George he just played T20 cricket didn't play in the T20 and that created a bit of budget to allow us to bring in other people as and when we could but it's not ideal. You want to go back to the Hino and Matt Henry situation where you get players who play most of the season. But as I say, with franchise cricket coming up now, the international fixtures as they are, and the fact that it's hard work playing championship cricket over here, particularly for a fast bowler. I mean, Wes was brilliant last year. He was a real diamond, loved it. We'll come back again you know, this year. But you're just keeping your fingers crossed every game that he plays in Australia. I saw he got six for 40 on the other day is that, you know, by the time we get round to March, that he's fit and firing and, yeah. you know, and, and we have to look after him and so on. But yeah, it's become harder and harder and harder. Dan Weston has been with us now for a year, sort of, you know, on a consultancy contract. So he does all the analysis and I think that's a really good starting point. But it's a combination between the coaches and the cricket side. And we, you know, we're 
So Billings plays a lot of international cricket. So sees players. Min Patel been very involved with the England setup and, and is, is a great watcher of cricket and a good analyst and sees things. And we've got you know one or two people based in Australia or around the place that we talk about. So it's a collaborative thing. I say it's been easier in the past to get T20 bowlers or players than it has to get championship players and particularly is it we're looking for bowlers most of the time so going to that kind of pool of t20 players so taking that for example how do you find a player to offer a contract to so i hear what you're saying that you have you know people in different areas like billings your analysts and so on but to know that they're available and might be willing to do you just have to keep contacting players or is there almost an agency somewhere that says we've got these six bowlers who could be available for the blast do you like any of them yeah it works works both ways i mean all of these players now have agents and if you're looking at an australian for example uh, there's a spreadsheet there which is updated on their equivalent of the pca as to whose agent there. so so that's the first point of call you just literally whatsapp an agent overnight to say we'd like to talk to you know we'd would was Agar be interested in coming over to play county cricket? So once you've identified someone, then there are absolutely ways and it's generally through the agents and you start up a conversation. The agents themselves will send out lists of players who are on their books. You know, several times you see the same player on seemingly several different agents' books. So you get to build relationships with the agents uh, over a period of time. So they more and more are playing a, a part in the game. But yeah, that side of it, once you've identified a player and you know who their agent is, then it would be me to be get in contact with them and you start a conversation with him. And I know you said Matt Henry's probably the best. Is he the best signing you feel you've made during your time here? Well, I, I think for consistency of what he performed, 77 wickets in 11 championship matches and a major player in our 50 over getting to the final, you'd have to say, I think he's been that best signing, got us promotion. Without him, would we have got promotion? Who knows? But he certainly led that campaign. I think Naby was a really exciting signing, and Case made a big impact for us, just fitted in for us. So from an overseas player, those are the, probably the three that really stand out. Heiner had a brilliant first couple of years, particularly in the One Day Cup and then fell foul of injury as much as anything else. So that sort of faded a little bit. The Mulder did really well for us in a short period of time. And I think in a different time, he's actually turned out to be exactly that sort of player for Leicester over the last couple of years. He's somebody who just misses out on the international side and therefore is available. So you can get a bit lucky. I mean, obviously, Essex looking at Harmer, that's been the, the signing of the century, really, in terms of the consistency of which he's made. You know, He's taken wickets and led two or three championship charges kind of thing that absolutely is the case but domestically i think we've been lucky well lucky smart i'm excited if you look at the list of players that have come from podmore and milnes initially Clarson, and then you i'm going to miss people out here but hammy kadri has been an interesting signing as a 19 year old still yet to really make that breakthrough but making some progress then Compton, of course, you know, came really out of second team cricket, although very experienced. Another, that phenomenal year, Gilchrist, uh, we've already mentioned. Tawanda now was an unusual set of circumstances where we worked, you know, very closely with the local MP to get through his visa situation and get his leave to remain here. And then Joey Everson, really exciting. And now Matt Parkinson, I think, will give the, the side a really different dimension next year. So we've also signed a couple of young bowlers. George Garrett from Warwickshire, who 
I think we'll be interested to see how he kicks on with more opportunity. And then Michael Cohen more recently. Again, left armour, really a sort of exciting talent. He's played a bit of first-class cricket in South Africa and for Derbyshire. You just hope to find these sort of little nuggets, really, because... As I say, we competed for the Worcester bowlers that were out on the market this year and didn't get anywhere. And we had one or two other sort of established bowlers, which all went elsewhere for lots of different reasons, I'm sure. But, you know, that difference between the hundred sides, the old test match grounds and the hundred sides and the financial impact that this is having is making it harder and harder to really compete in the open market. So you've got to try and find angles and try and find bargains. Do you have a name or two of maybe domestic or overseas players, doesn't have to be from this season previously, who you think could have really transformed this side. Maybe it was just for that blast campaign or whatever it was. Just some, something to like whet the appetite of what could have been for us fans. Well, we've got very close to signing Scott Boland before he played a test match that he was going to come. <laughs> well, we, we were in talks with him about coming for what would have been last season. Yeah, when was the ashes that he sort of yeah, came yeah. on and dominated? Yeah, yeah. Sean Abbott was going to come to us as well. Actually, not this time round, although we, we did talk to him this time round, but two years ago when he first signed for Surrey, he we got very close to signing him before that. Matt Henry was due to come to us this year, but wanted to play T20 cricket. It was only going to be a short period of time, and we'd already committed on T20 cricket. So there's so much that goes on. There's always a bit of luck to it, as well as everything else falling into place. So... I think those guys probably probably stand out. Well, actually, we did very... If he hadn't have got injured, Nathan Ellis, we were the first person probably to spot him. And he was due to come and play T20 cricket for us in 2022. Might even be 21 now. It's hard yeah. to... you know. The, but yeah, he, before he played for Australia, we watched him grow in Tasmania and see... We had several conversations and he was absolutely going to sign, but he did his... Did his side muscle and then that following summer made his debut for Australia and then IPL yeah. and the rest is history. He was instrumental in winning the title for Hampshire two years ago. So If we had got Abbott over the line, that would have saved us some pain this year. Certainly would have this year, wouldn't yeah. it? Blimey, oh, what an innings that was. Amazing. Okay, so talking about signing players and this one perhaps was a bit of a rush. One of my favourite stories from that horrendous time during COVID was the Mook Spitfires. <laughs> so, yes. would you for those who aren't aware of quite what happened during that well now remarkable few weeks what happened there and what was it like the mad scramble to get these players in well yeah I mean we'd played Surrey on the Friday night and absolutely trounced Surrey one by nine wickets I think in a T20 which meant that we were qualified but we still had two games left and we weren't sure of a home quarter final and Previous year, we lost to Surrey in a quarterfinal, but on a spinning wicket up at but the over one. And it was really important that we got a home quarterfinal. So that was on the Friday night, and we got the first news on Saturday morning that one of our players might have tested positive for COVID. So we were playing a first-class match on the Sunday. So this was the day before. Now, bear in mind that our players generally travel by coach and had been in the same dressing room and the regulations at that time meant that if one person went down then anybody in close contact was deemed to have been had to be put into quarantine so basically we lost the whole squad overnight so we had a, a number of conversations with walks with mark decker who was running our second team and we said 
Look, we won't know until probably three o'clock this afternoon as to whether this test is genuinely positive, but we've got to make some inroads and see if we can't get a side together. We probably had five or six, I can't remember the absolute numbers, who of our you know, of our squad who could play, who hadn't been involved in the Surrey trip. So they were straight in. And then we started to look at, well, who else had played for our second team? Who else might be available? And, you know, people like Joe Gordon played. Um, crikey, there was, a, there was a whole number of people that played. Max Luckett, Jazz Singh made his debut. We managed to get a side. And bear in mind that they've all got to be registered They've all got to have had a head scan or concussion scan and an ECG test to be eligible to play first-class cricket. So you had to find people who'd been playing second-team cricket or had been involved in a professional setup who might suddenly be available. So Harry Finch was another one. Dan Lincoln, who played a bit for Middlesex. We managed to get a game on with Sussex's help we delayed the start so we could get the registrations done and all the rest of it but rather than drop out of a of a it was Canterbury week I think wasn't it we managed to get that first class fixture on but we then had a week till the following Friday I think it was to put together a side to take up to Middlesex luckily Crawley came back to us who'd been with England so he captained the side and we thought well actually it's vital for us to get another win somehow to ensure this home qualification, the home quarter final. So we looked around as to, well, who, you know, who's got a record or not? And, and the Scots became somebody we, we became very interested in. So George Munsey, we'd looked at him actually as to whether he could be involved. His T20 and his 50 over cricket were such that he, he was really stood out. McLeod was in Kent anyway. And, you know, we started to make these things and then we needed a seamer. So Sarif came and played. And we thought, well, we're just going to make the most competitive side that we can. They were all delighted to get the opportunity to come down. We knew they'd be available for two games. We tried to keep it as secret as possible because I think from Middlesex perspective, you know, they were out of the, they, they weren't competing for anything. But I think the fact that we'd already qualified and the fact that we'd lost a whole squad probably meant that we weren't going to be that competitive. And therefore, they didn't really worry about it, possibly. I, I don't know. But we de- deliberately decided to keep the Scottish element out of it. And therefore, come 4.30 or whenever we had to announce the site, the fact that the three Scots, McSpitfars, as, uh, <laughs> as Liam called them, it just gave us a bit of a competitive edge. And they played unbelievably well out there. You know, I think the fact that we beat Middlesex comfortably in the end, every bowler we turned to got a wicket. We managed to get a score. Harry Finch played very well from what I remember. Hino was still playing and Zach Crawley. So we you know, we had some core players there. I remember Harry Finch getting runs and then Elliot, left arm spinner who'd been on the Sussex book, bowled beautifully. Marcus Arian had bowled beautifully. We just outplayed them. And it actually was a, it was a huge result for us to ensure that we got a home quarter final. Gets as it turned out to be the Birmingham Bears and you know, the rest is history. We went on to win the tournament. Amazing story. What is the thing you're going to miss the most about your role? Oh, you know, this is a very exciting role. When it comes down to the cricket and trying to find ways to maximise our 
the, the people that we've got, the talent that we've got, and how can we add to that? You know, that's the really exciting bit of, of being involved. And, you know, there's some great people here, and it becomes all-encompassing. So you, you go home and you think about cricket, and it, it genuinely is a seven-day, 24-hour type job, because you never quite forget about it. You, you know, you never leave it alone. And, you know, with the international global market, you know, you could get a, a call from South Africa or from Australia, at, you know, 10 o'clock at night kind of thing, just because of the way the time differences. So absolutely, the, the buzz and the excitement of putting that together. It's also great to see young players come through. So, you know, in, in the time that I've been, Zach was already on the staff. See Ollie Robinson come through. They see Jordan Cox signed as a 17-year-old. Jaden Denley this year making his debut and coming through. Then the One Day Cup, and now will join us next year. All those kind of things are just really exciting. So seeing young players thrive and come through. You know, Tawanda is a is a wonderful example. Such a talented player, but missed out on so much with all the uncertainty around COVID, and then whether he could stay or not. And to see him come out and play some of the innings that he does, and ultimately it's the people, it's the involvement, and it's the people. And I think we've got some great people here, not just on the field but off the field. And so I will definitely miss an awful lot of that. I won't necessarily miss getting up at 6.30 every day and driving an hour to Canterbury. I definitely won't miss in the winter driving back in the dark every evening. Um, and the whole game, of course, there's an awful lot of, out, of of other stuff that goes on. You know, Clearly the game's gone through a really difficult time over the whole EDI sort of stuff. I think there are challenges in the game as we go forward in terms of how the franchise world's going to go and you know where county cricket is going to go. How do we find the money to develop the Williams games? All, all this kind of stuff is, is the day-to-dayness of it. But yeah, I will definitely miss most of the people and, and the real excitement and the buzz of putting something together and seeing it work. Hard to pinpoint one, but what would you say is the decision you're most proud of during your time here at Kent? Gosh, <laughs> that's that's really hard to say, I think. No, it's, it's really hard to say because I think there are all sort of so many. I think trying to set out the stall in the first place, what was I going to do and trying to gain credibility and respect of players who were a little bit lost and just coming in and trying to deliver an air of calm but a sense of purpose as to where we were going to go how do we make the most of our ability so how do we gain respect how do we raise standards and that has been a sort of consistent theme all the way through and we'll look back and I think we've achieved lots of it at times and we've struggled at other times but that sort of theme of how do we make the most of what we've got is really important. And how I normally like to end these episodes is with a Kent top six. So the idea here is players that you've played with, but also now in your case, maybe players you've brought in, a couple batters, a couple bowlers, maybe a captain, an all-rounder, keeper in there. If you had to throw a six aside, as it were, <laughs> who would make that side for you? Gosh, that's difficult because I span two eras. Having played with some of the real greats, you know, going back to that sort of side of the 70s, you know, lucky enough to play with John Shepard, Nassif Iqbal, Derek Underwood, it'd be hard to beat those three in terms of real star quality. I think, you know, I, I only saw the, the back end of Darren in terms of what he did, but some of the innings that he played were just out of this world. You know, that 230 got up at Yorkshire, the 160 or 180, whatever it was against Glamorgan here, were quite extraordinary. And, 
the fact that he bowled so many overs in the latter part of his career and never went at more than two and a bit. He almost did the spinner's role for us in terms of holding an end up as well as taking wickets at the rate that he did. I think that Joe Denley in 2018 just had a, a remarkable year in all phases. Going to the Oval in a T20 game, getting 100 and then getting a hat-trick to win us the game is pretty remarkable, really. But in all formats, the way in which he played. And you're going to leave so many people out, but I guess now seeing the way in which Zach Crawley has come through to be you know, one of the most exciting talents in world cricket has been phenomenal. Thank you so much, Paul, for your time today. It's been fascinating and been wonderful to talk to you. I think I can speak for all the listeners and the fans in saying thank you very much for all your efforts that you've put in during your time here at Kent and to have really enjoy going into retirement and enjoy not having to drive home in the dark. (laughs) I can appreciate how bad that can be, but thank you again so much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Cameron. Just before we go, I have an exciting announcement to make, and that is the return of the Christmas Carvery, an invitation extended to all members and supporters of Kent Cricket at the Spitfire Ground St. Lawrence on Monday the 4th of December. Traditionally reserved for members of the club in years past, this edition will see the invitation once again extended to the club's supporters, as well as our members, as a thank you for your loyal support shown towards Kent in the 2023 season, as well as a two-course Carvery meal that includes festive favourites, there will also be a live Q&A session with newly appointed Director of Cricket, Simon Cook, and Club Captain, Daniel Bell Drummond. Purchase your tickets now at kentcricket.co.uk slash events. That's kentcricket.co.uk slash events. 